And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. Hi, Gary. And, well, well, we're back. We haven't done a podcast with the two of us chatting about random things for a few weeks now, so we, we clearly owe it to each other to have a conversation. <laughs> Something like that. We certainly don't owe it to anybody else. I don't know if anyone even cares. Not at all. But, well, the thing is, this is the time of the year when we're not at the beginning of the awards season, so we can't obsessively go on about awards, except we can about one one Hugo thing we'll talk about in a minute. And it's a little bit early for the end of the year wrap-up sort of thing. It's a little bit late for what are we looking forward to this year. We're in the middle of the fall season. We're in what those of us in the American Midwest call... The October country. <laughs> yes, indeed. We're in that period where if I had not chosen to be sensible, if I had not chosen to remain home, uh, I would be preparing to get ready for World Fantasy Convention, which is really just about, I suppose, four weeks away, three, four weeks away. That's less than a month away. Yeah, in, in, in Columbus, Ohio. And normally I would be ramping up for that, but I am, I have to tell you, Gary, delighted to be staying home this year. Which sounds very unfriendly towards the convention, but isn't. No, I, well, I completely understand after especially the, the, the expense and time and commitment it takes for you to go to Kansas City, for example. Doing two or three of those a year would be something. Uh, I, I try to imagine when I, when I see you at a convention, I try to imagine what it would be like for me to go to Perth two or three times a year, never having been there at all. And it just sounds like a nightmare. It, it can be a little bit of a nightmare. It, there, there are issues with traveling so far. But the real win is it makes November simpler for me because the convention, you know, going to the convention tends to knock out about three weeks' worth of work time. And it's not really the right time for me to lose three weeks. I have to start right. getting, you know, knuckling down on the, the best of the year, knuckling down on recommended reading and some other things, even though there are some of those things that I'd be delighted not to do ever again. And one of the things that happens with with those of us in academia is that uh, world fantasy occurs in the middle of the fall semester, so it's always difficult to get in and out. Fortunately, I'm teaching online this semester, so it's not a problem for me. But it's also not a problem when Columbus is an hour away. Literally, uh, when I fly to... uh, a convention in the Eastern time zone, I fly back in zero time because of the time change. So, in other words, it's much easier for me to go to a convention and mostly hang out with friends and not really plan to do a lot, which is pretty much my plan for uh, for, for Columbus, even though uh, there are some people there I haven't seen in a long time. And it, it it's it's what people uh, be, call, a, call a bar con. I mean, a lot of people have used that phrase. They're going there to see friends. Uh, I don't know a lot about the program. I may or may not be on it. But I can afford to spend a weekend just to see friends. If I were flying 20 hours or something just to see some friends for a couple of days, I'd have to think about it seriously. I think that's it. You do have to think about it very seriously. Um, I don't come just to see friends, though that's an enormous motivation for it and has become more so over time. Uh, I do need to have it work for me as a convention and as an event and all that kind of thing. And you're absolutely right. If if World Fantasy Convention was happening in Adelaide, say, which might be a similar distance away, I wouldn't hesitate to go at all. I've got no animus against the convention. It's just the, the timing and how it works. Certainly going to WorldCon 
is simpler for me on an annual basis, and certainly that's what I'll be doing for the next couple of weeks, as I've said on the podcast before. Um, I, I'm going to segue, because it is a, a reasonable segue from talking about Worldcon, to talk about a step that the nice people at FinCon have taken, and they've just announced it quite recently, at the last business meeting of the World Science Fiction Society at the Kansas mm-hmm. City Worldcon, it was decided to add a new fiction category to the Hugos, something that has not been done for many, many, many a year. That new category is Best mm-hmm. Series, and they've added all kinds of rules, regulations, and things around it, as the, the nice people at the Hugos tend to do. Um, the, the intention, I think, comes out of, actually, the discussions around uh, the sad puppy debates, a number of people mm-hmm. during the sad puppy debates put forward the view that the Hugo Awards categories don't rec- res- you know, recognize all of the changes to fiction in the modern era. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the categories were essentially laid out in the 1960s, which is true. And I think Eric Flint particularly, and if you go to his blog at ericflint.com, you can probably find the article, uh, put, put several, put, you know, published several articles talking about how there are different kinds of series being published, different, different novel forms, if you mm-hmm. like, you know, long, long novels, uh, novels that fall into multiple volumes, all these sorts of things. And the people at the Hugos decided to do a best series Hugo. And they discussed it. There was a committee formed. Our friend Farah Mendelssohn mm-hmm. was on that committee. And they decided basically to recognize a multi-volume science fiction or fantasy story unified by elements such as plot, character, setting, and presentation, which have appeared in at least three volumes, consisting of at least 240,000 words total by the end of the calendar year 2016, with at least one volume being published in 2016. Now, probably in in an unprecedented move, I have to say, I went and I read the business meeting minutes about okay. this award which i think i think i'd get a prize for that or something well, or, i have one question before you go on it is. is this a one-time thing or is this an experimental thing that may become permanent that, that's a super question and i have an answer to it uh what happened in kansas city was they decided to to test the category right so if it's ratified in Helsinki, and it's not been ratified yet, then it will run for three years, just as the original graphic novel Hugo were in. Uh, and then it will be reviewed to see if it gets to be continued. What is happening is in, in Helsinki is they've opted to test the category. They are allowed, any Worldcon com- committee is allowed to present a special Hugo Award. They nominate, they do the category and all that kind of thing. And they've chosen that their special Hugo Award will be the best series Hugo, which means there's a trial, then there's the official trial of three years, then it gets reviewed, which means potentially it will be presented across four years. The only thing is, this first trial Hugo, I don't think is fully bound by all of the rules that control the the official one if it's ratified in Helsinki. I think the idea, and I'm putting words in their mouths because it's not actually in the minutes and I haven't spoken to anybody. I think the idea at Helsinki was, we like this Hugo idea. It seems good. They're going to vote for it on the Sunday of the convention. How about we test it on the Saturday and see uh-huh. how it goes? So, probably the, no, the practice, but, yeah. Okay, uh, before we go on into the details of whether it's a good idea or not, do you know what the exact... You, you mentioned a volume has to be in... There has to be so many words... 
do we have any kind of an aesthetic definition of what a series is? There is indication in the minutes of the business meeting. There's nothing specific in the actual media release put out by Helsinki at this point. It just simply refers to a multi-volume story. The critical guide here happened in 1966. As I said before, the Hugos love yes, history. In 1966, the uh, World Science Fiction Convention presented the Best All-Time Series Award to Foundation by Isaac Asimov. Uh, it was up against, and I forget all the things were up against, but, but it was up against Heinlein's Future History and, and a couple of others. Immediately what you will recognize is neither of those two examples are, are limited to novels. There is no definition of what a volume is, but it is clear from the discussion that a, a, a volume or an installment can be a short story, can be a novella, can be a novelette, can be a novel. The issue is that as long as the entirety of the work exceeds 240,000 words and three, let's say, installments here, because that may be a little clearer in That's my mind, term. at least. So three installments. So you could, yeah. So you could, for example, have written a novel, written a novella, written a short story, written another novel, and all up, that's five installments or something, and as long as it's over 240,000 words and one of those installments was this year, you're eligible. So, for example, in Analog this year, I think Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell published a story that relates to the Moat and God's Eye, I think. If that's true, then the Moat and God's Eye series would now be eligible this year. That was exactly what my question was going to be. If you have somebody who had oh, – another good example would be Joe Haldeman, who eventually turned their Forever War into a series. And at some point, I think um, maybe after the novels had come out, a, a, a separate war was a novella. And so if Joe were to decide next year to write a short story set in the Forever War universe, that makes the entire series eligible. That is correct. There are a couple of key caveats here, and they are mm -hmm. valuable ones. The first one is that a series can be nominated multiple times, but it may only win once. Okay. So if you look at a series like C.J. Cherry's Foreigner series... It's out to about 15 volumes or something now. There's been one every year for the last mm -hmm. 15 years. It could, be, it, it could be nominated this year. It would then not be eligible next year. I'm sorry, it would be eligible next year if there was another volume published. Once that has won, I believe, and this is, my memory is a little hazy, I believe what would happen is it would have to then publish a further three installments or 240,000 words, and then it would be eligible again. Uh, I think. That... I think. But for the purposes of next year, for the purposes of next year, that doesn't yeah. really count. For the purposes of Helsinki, it's like, if there's something out, and let me give you a really good example that I stumbled across. Our mutual friend, Ellen Kushner, fabulous fantasist uh -huh. from New York City, published a novel called Swords Point in 1987. She wrote a sequel with her partner, Delia Sherman, The Fall of Kings, uh, mm -hmm. so, some years later, and then followed it again with another sequel that she wrote by herself, The Privilege of the Sword. Right. Right. And then, last year, she did a serial box sequel, or prequel, called Tremontaine, which she did with four other writers. Right. She wrote some of it, they wrote some of it. And this, this year, they're about to launch season two of Tremontaine, which will be done by Ellen and Diverse Hands again. That second serial will make the whole series eligible. And I believe all 
of the creators involved will be eligible together. So, okay, I guess that's reasonable. Um, I would I would have mixed feelings about that if I were Ellen Kushner and to spend a lot of time building up a world and then other people basically got to share in my Hugo for that world for having written one short story in a collection that appeared 20 years later. That's Okay, next, that next question. Um, the um, definition that you read implies a continuous narrative rather than, let's say, um, a number of independent novels with separate no. with the same characters. No. The actual um, wording is unified by elements of plot, character, setting, and presentation. So the unification, I don't think, has to be a continuous mm -hmm. plot. It can be mm -hmm. same world. This is, I think, intending to get around the issue of subseries within a series. Apparently, and we should probably get somebody on who was part of the committee to discuss this, there was a lot of discussion of the issue of subseries. If you were to nominate, for example, Terry Pratchett's Discworld, there are subseries within Discworld itself. Similarly, uh, the CJ Cherry Foreigner series mm. divides into multiple trilogies. So you could nominate one of those. So I believe it, it's to get around that so that they, they, they actually ca capture the entirety of the series rather than having the sub-series nominated because there's always as an underlying principle, I mean a couple of the underlying principles of the Hugo Awards that are important here are, one they don't like one work to be eligible right. multiple times. This potentially does but they're trying to limit it. So for example, the new Foreign novel could be eligible for best novel, while for, the foreigner series could be eligible for best series. But to allow it to be eligible for best series and best series and best series is not something they like. No. Mm -hmm. Similarly, the, the, sorry, to continue, the other thing that they are very, very firm about is that they want the vote, the nominators, to indicate their preferences by actually nominating. And what I mean, why that's important is. There are, based on the definition, you could say, for example, that a graphic novel, a comic book series, a cartoon, a comic book series could be eligible under their definition. Okay, there's nothing preventing it. Wait, a comic book series could. Um, so you, wait a minute. Now, now the series is including what is a separate category of graphic novel and is merging that with with a fiction category. Well, it doesn't overtly leave it out, and I, th you know, so that which is an issue. However, there's an indication that there's not many comic book series in the world that would have a quarter of a million words of text in them. So that tends to, that tends to keep that out. But it'll be one, something that'll have to be tested by the nominators. And I think that's one thing to be commended. Why, one, one thing that Helsinki needs to be commended for in testing the series. There are some of these assumptions that will get tested as they go through and then they can be refined for the actual test. I presume another rule... If a work cannot win more than one Hugo, that if you have something like, oh, let's say uh, Neil Gaiman's American Gods, um, and he has written a couple of stories set in that world, and there may be a sequel down the road, can you create a series based on a work which has already won a Hugo? I don't remember offhand if American Gods won the Hugo. I should. I think you can because the part of the series won, but the series has won. Okay. What could be very interesting, actually, is when it comes to the 2018 nominations, because 
I know Neil is working on a novel, but I don't know what it is. I think it's a new American mm-hmm. Gods novel, but I don't know. However, he's undeniably working on the yes. American Gods television series. Does the American Gods television series make the American Gods book series eligible? I doubt that. Uh, and the reason I would doubt that is I'm not sure he's... Well, I, it's, I, when I say I doubt that, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is is, is uh, Game of Thrones, because George has not written most of the episodes of the series. And, in fact, it's diverged from his novels, as we all well know now. So then you have a real question as to who is the creator of the series you're talking about. I have a funny feeling, and it's going to be up to the nominators to decide this, that A Song of Ice and Fire could be eligible on that, that, that basis. On the basis of the TV program or on the basis of the... Okay, that's yes. interesting. Yes, yes. And the rationale would be it's multi-volume, it's unified by elements, and has it had a new installment this year? Well, the t- television series has had a new season and they've written original material for it. It's, it may well be eligible. I hadn't really thought about it until we discussed it. I mean, here's another one that's a lot of fun that relates to our friend George, right? That was my next question. Wild Cards, which is basically a series of anthologies. Yeah, Well, it's more complicated than that. It's a series of anthologies and braided novels, and there's mm-hmm. a novel in there, I think, and some other stuff. And I think, if, if, if I'm correct, I think that if Wild Cards were to be nominated, every single writer on Wild Cards would be nominated. There has to be – okay, this is one of the things that local committees have to come up with. Helsinki has to worry about it. Uh, didn't didn't the Hugo Awards more or less um, decide that there was going to be a maximum number of statuettes they'd hand out at any given uh, convention? Yeah, we need a little bit of clarification here from Hugo people, but here's my recollection of it, Gary. My recollection of it is that they said they would only present three statuettes, but that doesn't no, it limit doesn't. the number of nominees, and and the nominees have the option of choosing to purchase additional ah, statuettes. Okay, okay, I was not aware of that, but th- that's a minor consideration because you're being honored, and anybody who'd ever written a wild card uh, story of any sort could then share in a Hugo uh, twenty years later. Absolutely true. I mean, like Howard Waldrop wrote a story, Jet, uh, the annotated Jet Boy, for the first Wild Cards anthology. He would, I believe, be one of the nominees, as would Roger, the late Roger Zelazny. Uh, it would be, I think, the single greatest influx of Hugo nominees in a single year in history. It almost certainly would be that, depending on who gets nominated, and especially if you're talking about multi-author series like this. Another question. Uh, a number of novels which individually I don't think have ever been nominated for Hugo Awards are tie-in novels for Star Wars and Star Trek mostly, but X-Files and any number of things. So let's say somebody wanted to award Star Wars as the best series. Does that suddenly include everyone who's written a Star Wars novel plus all the screen, script writers and the screenwriters over, over a 50-year period? I do not see any guidance in the material that I've read. I mean, you could make an argument culturally that uh, Star Trek, probably more than Star Wars, has been one of the most culturally influential science fiction series ever. And it only became, (coughs) excuse me, it only became a a fiction series by virtue of of, of originally spinoffs. And there were major writers involved in that series. Everybody from James Blish to Elizabeth Hand has written 
Elizabeth Hand has not written Star Trek. She's written uh, everybody from James Blish to Joe Haldeman have written Star, Star Trek material. Uh, so suddenly you have a huge, huge number of people who would be eligible for a Hugo Award, um, including all, everybody who ever wrote a script for the TV series, everybody who ever worked on one of the movie screenplays. That's true, though. I mean, to, to sort of maybe tamp this madness down a little bit, there may well be some caveat in the rules or the discussions that I've not seen. There might be, but there's no, there's no doubt there's 250,000 words worth of actual legitimate Star, oh, sure. Star Trek fiction. Oh, absolutely. Um, and there, there are others. I mean, one of the ones that I would not have thought about until we started talking about this is Frank Herbert would be eligible for June because there have been... Uh, for further installments of that series, in fact, published this very year by uh, uh, his son and by Kevin Anderson. So that series would be eligible for best all, for, for best series. Um, maybe some of the series that people might like to see eligible wouldn't be eligible because they don't happen to be installments. Uh, certainly, I think Star Wars, uh, probably Star Trek. I assume the books are coming out at the moment. I don't really follow it very closely. What I did notice in the discussion that I looked at or that I think I saw, or, or at least around it, is there is a very definite desire to include multiple creators because they're looking at the kind of examples you see at uh, coming out of Bain. Things like Eric Flint's own 1634 series, things like some of the series that I think David Weber's involved in. You know, they have diverse hands. Larry Niven does it, you know. Uh, Ringworld or whoever gets continued by somebody else, and Larry Niven's a, a, a collaborator, but it's basically the other person, I think. Yeah, that that kind of stuff. Uh, I believe, I suspect Marion Zimmer Bradley's eligible under one of the Darkover spinoffs or something. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if one of those. Was I guess one of the things that's confusing is the is, is the difference between a series and a franchise, uh, and I'm not sure that distinction is being made here, uh, because a franchise, as I said, could be Star Trek, it could be Star Wars, it could be X Files, it could be Dune has become a franchise. Uh, to some extent, Foundation became a franchise because of Foundation. <clears throat> were to win again, which it may or may not be eligible to since it's already won as a series, then suddenly Benford and, 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 and Bryn and, and Bear would all be eligible for, uh, and, and Scott Card would all, all, all be eligible for, for, for that award. I suspect, in fact, okay, I suspect that's true, and I suspect that it, it would be eligible were there a new Foundation story published this year. Yeah. Well, this is, okay, I think one of the questions here, and we're getting a little bit obsessive about about uh, awards rules and that sort of thing. I think one of the things that I, I remember reading that post from Eric Flint, who is a remarkably clear thinker about these issues, is the distinction between simply something that exists for fans to award a favorite work and the kind of aesthetic definition. Is a series in any way that's significant a separate work of art from a novel? And the reason I say that's important <clears throat> is because there are series and the two that come to mind immediately are The Lord of the Rings and The Book of the New Sun, or The Book of the Long Sun, or all the long books of all the suns. Uh, but The Book of the New Sun was a four-volume novel. Uh, Lord of the Rings is a three-volume novel. Now, the, the fact that these were series were, to some extent, accidents of publishing. Uh, they could have been published as massive novels. It was not a practical thing to do at the time. So, as a kind of aesthetic construct, the idea of the series, the idea of the trilogy, the idea of a narrative which takes place over four or five volumes and then comes to a conclusion that wraps up everything that happened in the four or five volumes 
is a very different kind of aesthetic construct from a world which is built for people to play in. That's true. But I don't think that the rules are going to make that distinction. I suspect, again, as seems to be you know, my, my theme here to put the words in other people's mouths, I suspect that will rest with first the nominators and then the administrators. I don't think you're likely to get well, any I, guidance I th I think to some extent it's wise not to have guidance on that. And I think that when categories like this are introduced, uh, when, when other categories have been introduced, for example, the fan cast category, um, two rigid definitions are only going to confuse people more. So I think to some extent, yeah, this would have to be worked out over a period of time and probably worked out in a debate between people who want to honor multi-volume novels and people who want to honor on a world building. Essentially, what this seems to me to be doing is proclaiming that the act of world building, apart from other narrative concerns, such as plot and character and, uh, and, and even setting, the world building itself is an art that needs to be recognized by the Hugos. Is that your understanding of kind of what this means? To a point, yeah. I, th I think it's probably, le it's probably less set in stone than that, less clarified than that. I think that it's partly that, but I think it's also, I mean, there are forms. I mean, it's fair to say that, you know, the, 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 the multi, as you say, the, the multi-volume novel is a form, the serial is a form, and they're just trying to cover it generally. I think it's a, I think it's a very well-intentioned thing. I'm, I'm not sure that I think it's simple enough to actually execute successfully, but it's going to be oh, I, I don't think it probably won't be executed cleanly. Successfully is a, is a judgment call. I think the set of discussions that opens up is a very interesting set of discussions. Uh, and it, it, it's one which ranges everywhere from marketing uh, concerns, where some, sometimes a publisher will say, you should make a series out of this. You, know, you have a franchise going on. <clears throat> Presumably Charlene Harris will be eligible for this sort of thing because you know, it's a series of fantasy novels. Uh, but it also raises these questions about uh, whether the novel, and this I think is the part that Eric Flint was, was, was kind of arguing for, is are the categories that we have now sufficient to cover the kinds of fiction being written now? Uh, is the novel still the dominant form of science fiction if you consider a novel a separate aesthetic construct from a series? I think that I think that's right, although I don't think it's as wed to the term novel as you suspect, you know. Uh, for example, let me give you an example. Let's say author X wrote six 40,000-word novellas across uh -huh. three years, out lay laying out a particular narrative, you know, sharing, setting, and whatever else. Those six novellas would all, would then become a series. Well, essentially, you've just described the Foundation trilogy, except it was something like eight novellas. Yeah, but I mean that would be certainly eligible. Something like mm -hmm. Accelerando would actually probably come close. I, I don't, it don't, I don't think it hits the word count limit, but if its word count limit was high enough, would certainly have hit the um, the series requirement. Tell you know, a really weird one though. Do you want to know a really weird one? Okay, Cthulhu Mythos. Oh, what an interesting idea. Um, is H.P. Lovecraft eligible for the Hugo? There undeniably must be new Lovecraft, Lovecraftian fiction that has character setting and plot. Uh, I mean, and that, in fact, 
involved. I guess that the, 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 tr- the trick is going to be whether the plot and the character and the setting all have to be unified in the one work that's added in. But yeah, I mean, I don't maybe. know. That's a very interesting question because the mythos is again, it goes back to world building. It is the, to use Lovecraft's own phrase, the fundamental lore or legend that these elder gods and so forth and so on are waiting for us, uh, and they they more or less fit together into the cosmology. So now you're raising the question, is a single invented cosmology um, eligible for a series? Um, that would raise, I don't know, uh, if, you, if you want to be... Let me ask you this, though. Is the Cthulhu mythos being eligible any different from the Star Wars universe being eligible? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, the Star Wars universe has a kind of Bible. It has an overarching narrative. As far as I know, most of the fiction written within the Star Wars universe follows the essential narrative arc laid out in the movies. It it goes before and after that. It has interstitial material and so forth and so on. But there is a kind of central narrative arc. I'm not sure that the Cthulhu mythos has a narrative arc. It simply has a set of common assumptions. Um, And... uh, which which may be enough to it might be enough to, to to rule it out. I'm trying to think if there are other examples like that, um, where where any number of authors have, have decided to to play in some in somebody's universe, and nothing else is coming to mind. This is really interesting. I mean, there there are lots of created worlds that would be inviting for uh, for other writers to work in, and but there are a handful of writers, for example, that have uh, tried to write stories within the context of let's say. James Branch Cabell's Poctesme series, uh, that probably wouldn't be enough because there aren't enough writers involved. But again, that's not. That, I'm trying to think of another set of cosmological assumptions that work like that. You could, I suppose, look at the number of science fiction stories that came out during the 40s and 50s from people like Eric Frank Russell and even L. Ron Hubbard that sort of plugged into the Charles Fort cosmology. But since Ford himself never actually wrote any fiction or never wrote anything that he admitted was fiction, uh, you couldn't really count that as a fictional series. Hmm. No. And, and what do you do with oddities like um, H.B. Uh, Piper's Fuzzy Books? Were John Scalzi to write another fuzzy story as he did when he did mm-hmm. his fuzzy novel? Uh, would that then render the whole fuzzy series eligible? I think uh, it, it probably would. Actually, that, 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 that's a good point. Um, or uh, see if we can think of other examples of this sort of thing. Obviously, there have been lots of you know um, anthologies like Silverberg's Legends, where people are asked to revisit their own their own creations. But now we're talking about creations which are kind of loose in the atmosphere. Uh, I think I think uh, Cthulhu is part of that. I, I, yeah, I really think this is something that will ultimately be controlled by a bunch of pretty sensible nominators, though. Um, you know, I, I, I expect to see a whole range of stuff uh, nominated. There's a Bujold fantasy series, Lost Monster mm-hmm. Bujold fantasy series. I expect I think to I, see I, nominated. Yeah, there. I, no, I, 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 I expect there will be that others. most people will think of this in terms of favorite authors. And I I, I can understand the idea behind it. Uh, The idea is that there are any number of writers. Well, Bujold's not a good example because she's won a a truckload of Hugos. But uh, writers who don't get a lot of recognition for individual works, 
but who have created, you know, enormously impressive series over time, sometimes with just mostly stories and novellas. Another name who comes to mind there is Robert Reed, uh, who now has a silly but, sure. but the other question, and I, I finally was trying to think of these cosmological things, uh, presumably uh, the, the two names that have the longest-running series, if you want to count works by other authors, are Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Bram Stoker's Dracula. So does Frankenstein now become eligible for a Hugo? I suspect it would fall down on the unification, on the, on the unified uh, criteria. But I, I genuinely don't I, know. Okay. Maybe. If you look yeah, at maybe. all the Frankenstein movies that ignored Mary Shelley's novel and all the sort of bizarre things like I Frankenstein, which is a movie which I have actually sat down and tried to watch three or four times and never gotten more than 14 minutes into. Uh, but there are enough legitimate Frankenstein sequels, one being Michael Bishop's brilliant novel, Brittle Innings, that completely fit within the narrative laid out by Mary Shelley. So you could sure. put together easily 250,000 words of Frankenstein stories within the framework of the original novel and call that a series. I think that's fair. I mean, the kind of thing that I personally wouldn't like to see happen is I don't know that I think tribute anthologies should suddenly make series eligible. I, f I just feel like that's not in the genuine spirit of this. I think there has to be some kind of link, even if it's just in the mind of the nominators, directly to the primary creation wherever that is. I mean, it's like, I don't mind seeing wild cards mm -hmm. nominated because George is a continuous creative element throughout and everybody else is involved. I think Tremontaine being nominated is fine. Ellen Kushner plays a similar role. But if you were to do a, well, a Lovecraft tribute anthology, that doesn't really I, feel I, like that's in keeping with the I same I think that's true for thing. some tribute anthologies and not for other tribute anthologies. Uh, when you have a, a tribute anthology which is simply honoring Lovecraft or honoring Gene Wolfe, that's one thing. When you have a tribute anthology like Songs of Dying Earth, which is a tribute anthology to Jack Vance specifically focused on his Dying Earth scenario, then all those stories become related to that series, don't they? I think they do. My question then is, should something like Octavia's Brood, which came out last April, so mm -hmm. it's not eligible this year, but should something like Octavia's, Octav Octavia's Brood make um, Octavia I Butler's don't think so. I think if somebody were to write stories within, uh, the, the, within any of her worlds, let's say within the parable worlds, or um, th th that, that might be the case. I don't think that's what Octavia's Brood was, and I don't think you could get 250,000. I, I, I agree. Uh, something simply honoring a writer is not necessarily a series. Something honoring a writer within the context of writing stories related to a series that he created, which is why I mentioned Jack Vance. There are very, admittedly very few examples like that I can think of. As a matter of fact, the Dying Earth Anthology is the only one I can think of that um, specifically was focused on one of his worlds. I mean, the Dying Earth was not the only world he created. Um, there were later standalone novels like Imperio. There were science more science fiction novels. But that seemed to be honoring a series and working within the series. Some of the stories in Foundation's Friends, uh, you know, that's a tribute anthology, but it's a tribute not just to Asimov, but to the Foundation itself. 
and I think that's legitimate. Well, look, I, th I think all of the creative stuff is legitimate. Whether it necessarily should make it eligible for best series is another question. I mean, it's like next year... I'm just, just trying to see if I can get the actual title of this book. Okay, in January of 2017, uh -huh. um, Golan's books were published The Massacre of Mankind by Stephen Baxter, which is a sequel to H.G. Wells's War mm -hmm. of the Worlds. Now, I know that, that Wells only wrote one book, right? But have there been other... K.W. Jeter wrote the Morlock Knight novel. There are at least three or four other stories. There are enough time traveler stories to constitute a series, I'm pretty sure. There were, there, there were at least two or three novels. Then does that mean that... Yeah, that there are at least three or four novels. Um, okay, sure. Does that then mean that Massacre of Mankind and... War of the Worlds by Wells, whoever else, are now collectively eligible well, for Well, this raises series. another interesting question. Let's say somebody nominates that, and they mention Baxter, and they mention Wells, and they forget to mention, let's say, K.W. Cheater. Does that mean he has a complaint that he was cheated out of a Hugo Award by being left out of a series because somebody didn't happen to read his novel that was in that series? I don't know. What happens with Blade Runner? Does the new Blade Runner sequel that's being written constitute a sequel of sorts to Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Does that tie in with the Blade Runner novelization? Does that tie in with the KWG2 written Blade Runner sequels? Uh, does that become then sort of what? Philip K. Dick and K.W. Jeter and Hampton Fancher or something? That's uh, another very good question. And I, I think that, I don't know, there must be other stories... Uh, that are set in the Blade Runner universe. And the minute I started thinking of stories set in the Blade Runner universe, I thought there's another category here which would complicate things massively even more. There has to be a ton of Blade Runner fan fiction out there. Like there's Lord of the Rings fan fiction and there's fan fiction for just about everything. Um, I, sus I suspect that you, it would have to be officially published in some way. I'm sure that there are criteria. I mean, I'm confident there are criteria. I don't remember off the top of my head. But I am confident there are criteria in the Hugos to okay. manage that. And I, I do wonder if perhaps, I mean, maybe to bring it back to the core, since we've spent 40 minutes talking about this, to bring it back to the core of what the thing's supposed to achieve, um, a lot of these edge cases, I'm sure, will not arise. There, there may be the odd stray nomination, but when it comes down to looking at a ballot next... Um, June or something, whenever it comes out, uh, it will not have on it these edge cases. It will be the primary series that we. I think you're right. I think most people are going to think of it that way, and I think the intent of this, which could be to recommend, to, to you know, to recognize people, well, like 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 Bujold or like Cherry or like Steve Erickson or like uh, any number of people. Uh, I think most people will see it as that, and I think there is something to be said for that. There is something to be said for the argument that a series over a period of years or even decades can constitute a separate and distinct work of art from any one of the novels within that series. That's why I think it's the interesting argument. But I think you're right. I think most people are going to go after their favorite writers that they want to see recognized in some way. I, I think so. And I think you'll also see a chance to see some things potentially recognized that have been overlooked. So, for example, the kind of thing that I find encouraging as an idea is that, say, Dave Hutchinson, 
whose Europe trilogy comes to a conclusion uh-huh. in a month or so with Europe in winter, that that set of books can be recognized in next year's Hugo's, both with a potential Best Novel nomination and a Best Series nomination. Similarly, Christopher Priest's latest novel uh, renders the Dream Archipelago mm-hmm. work all eligible, I believe, as a single series. Those kind of things I find very encouraging. I find the edge cases less interesting. Um, there are a number of examples in the history of science fiction and fantasy and horror where a series ends up being more, I feel like, recognized as a whole than uh, for its parts. Well, I, th- I think... It- one thing that I don't think is... No, I, no I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that one of the things that has been a problem is uh, that you have individual novels in a series, and maybe the first one will be nominated and the second one won't, and then by the time the complete series is out, you realize, well, they should have given this... Uh, the example that comes to mind, weirdly enough, is the Oscars. Um, because when because you know, the, the Fellowship of the Ring came out, when the third Lord of the Rings movie appeared it got the best uh, picture oscar now individually i don't think any fantasy movie had a chance of getting an academy award before that but by the time the return of the king came out which arguably is not even the best movie of the three uh there was a sense we need to recognize this really monumental movie achievement and the way to do it was to recognize the last book and, and to some extent, that's happened in the Hugos, except frequently the series hasn't been recognized very well. <clears throat> so to some extent, it gets around the problem of what do you do when you've got a series of novels like I don't know if I don't know if any of the Book of the New Sun novels got Hugo Awards. Do you know that offhand? But but the point is, no, I, don't. I, I don't think any of them did. I don't think so, but, but together, you've got you know a four novel series, which is one of the masterpieces of modern science fiction, and to some extent. There's a sense, a kind of historical sense, almost of embarrassment that we didn't think of that at the time, and maybe we should have, and maybe now we need to recognize that. Although it, it, and it, it maybe so, <coughs> but I can also see people sort of saying, "Well, hey, look, 1634 hasn't been recognized for any of its constituent parts, I but there are many people yeah. who love that series." Um, similarly, the Honor Honor Harrington series. One of the things I saw raised, which I don't think has much. Mm much weight in, in, to my way of thinking is that the, the concern in inverted commas that an author may produce a throwaway minor installment of their series in order to uh, hook a, a potential best series nomination you know so for example I don't know John Scalzi could write a three page old man's war story or something rush it out and then suddenly old man's yeah. war would be eligible now I don't, I don't believe Scalzi would do that anyway but I don't really seriously believe anybody would do it. I don't like the idea that said that a weak installment of an existing series would render the entirety of a strong series oh. eligible. That I don't. Yeah, like. I, I, I understand what you're saying, and I think that uh, in, in the case of something uh, like the Eric Flint series, which, as you say, are, are very, uh, very popular, and I think that to some extent, even the people who are fans of series like that wouldn't want to pick out the one. That they would put up for an award. I don't. I, I think that I don't think even Eric would necessarily pick out one novel and say, "Well, this is the one you should have given me the Hugo for." I think he sees this as a kind of construct which is different from simply thinking up one novel. I'm sure Harry Turtledove works uh, his novels out the same way. So, uh, so I, I don't see I don't see writers 
cynically trying to write, okay, Larry Niven's going to write it. Okay, here's, here's, yeah. here's a three-page known space story. So now all the known space things are eligible. I find very few. There is one mm -hmm. thing I don't see happening, though. No, no, no. no, no. Sorry, what were you going to say? Continue, sorry. What I was going to say was, what I don't see happening is I don't see series being dropped into the Hugo packet and people reading themselves up to date so they can make an informed series decision. This is going to be probably more than any other category. Of I think it is. I, award. It, it, I think it's designed that way. I mean, uh, you, you could think of any number of writers. I mean, almost any writer who's been around for a couple of decades would have the option of just, oh, I'll write something. You know, Ursula Le Guin is not writing fiction anymore, but she could write a short story and set in the Hainish universe, and bingo, the entire Hainish worlds are, are eligible. I don't see that happening. I, I see this as being people wanting to recognize works which are sort of narrative constructs but are more than the novels that make up them, uh, but maybe no particular novel would be something that... Uh, that to have a chance in a given year. So I think it, it absolutely is that. It's a way of honoring uh, the Honor Harringtons or, or the 1638s or the uh, known space, if you want to honor that. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a kind of more contemporary version of that earlier 1966 Hugo. But the 1966 Hugo was clearly meant to recognize the fact that prior to the 1950s, there were very few science fiction novels at all. So if you had series of stories... They were collections of stories and novellas. You know, True. you had Clifford Simak City. You had uh, the iRobot stories. You had the future history of Heinlein. You had the Foundation stories. Even more than human started out at least as a couple of novellas. Uh, and there was a there was a reason for that. I think this kind of reasoning is completely different from that. I think people thinking in 1966 were thinking the Foundation is a complete work. The uh, Heinlein's thing is a, few, a complete work. City is a complete work. Now we're not thinking that. Now I think they're looking at honoring uh, of something which is not necessarily seen as being complete at the time of its being honored. I can see that. I can see that could be the case. What I'm curious about is, you know, what impact, by the way, our puppy friends will have on this. For example, I would expect uh, the Dresden Files to be nominated. Yeah. I would expect Scott Card's Enderverse to be nominated um, and a couple others. So it's going to be interesting to see what we get because don't forget as well that on top of this new category, there are the other new rules that impact on what gets nominated and what we get to see come next year. I can see, to be honest, to be cynical about it, I can see some of the puppy people actually writing stories to make certain uh, series eligible because there are some of the people on their list who, who might do that. Oh. There's one name I won't mention who I... I don't think I'd like to credit that as an uh, idea, Gary. No, I wouldn't want to credit that as an idea. I don't think we should uh, expect that, uh, well, assert that the writers on the non-puppy side are in any way more or less likely to re respond to this. I was thinking of one, one or two, or two people. people. I was thinking of one involved, or two people involved, not the people who have been nominated sometimes without their knowing it by the puppies. There are a couple of names I had in mind, which I won't mention. But you could figure out who they are. That's, that, that sounds fair enough. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, at the end of the day, it's, look, it's going to be interesting. Hopefully, it will, it will be a, another way to celebrate science fiction. I don't know if this now becomes the big, 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 big one as opposed to just the big I one. I think the big one is always going to be the novel. Uh, and, and, and the reason for that is that the series 
uh, as, as you mentioned, is going to have constituencies. There are people who have thought for years that they would like to see their favorite series writer, whether it's Eric Flint or Steve Erickson or Stephen Baxter, um, whose Zeely's series would be eligible under this. There are people who want to honor their writers uh, for, for these large, large constructs. And I think that's a, 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 a worthwhile thing to do. I still think that the novel award will re- be regarded as a central award simply because it will have to appeal to people outside of these various constituencies. Yeah. In other words, somebody... Look, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I don't even know what series um, I'd like to see. I more. hadn't even thought about that myself, come to think of it. Well, it, it's not a matter of what series you want to see win. It's a matter of what series that has a workout in the eligible year you want to see win, which means, you no, you can't go out and vote for Lord of the Rings now. Uh, <clears throat> unless, well, maybe you could. Maybe somebody publishes a Frodo story uh, in, in, in 2015. I don't think that's the way most people are going to approach this. Um, I think people are going to look at it by saying, okay, here's somebody who's been consistently writing entertaining books for decades, they never get nominated, but when you look at them as a whole, it's a pretty impressive construct. And I think those are the people that are going to get uh, the nominations. Well, I guess we shall wait and see for next year. Let us set this aside now, because we don't have much of the, the episode left. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we are getting towards the end of an hour. So what else has been happening in your science fictional universe, Gary K. Wolf? Um... Nothing terribly exciting is happening. As I say, this is the time of the year when you just start thinking about things like I'm starting to think about uh, getting nominations in for the Crawford Award next year. I'm thinking about start. We have to start thinking about year end review things. Uh, I start thinking about odd things that I get in the mail that I don't know um, what I'm going. But, but no, one, this is this is the time of the year when you have some major novels coming out, some of which I don't see because of certain publishers who don't get readable arcs to me in time. I'm not going to mention who those are. But also, Oddball Books, and there's a novel, and I, I feel really bad because I don't know if I can remember the name of it. There was an Israeli alternate history novel which got sent to me. And it's, 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 it's the first, it may not be the first Israeli novel I've read that isn't you know, by Lavi Tidar, uh, but it's very interesting. Uh, it's, it's part of what I'm seeing as a kind of interesting trend toward re-examining alternate history. Um, and <clears throat> this could be a coincidence of books just across my desk. Bruce Sterling's Pirate Utopia takes a really oddball part of 20th century history. Uh, the occupation of the city of Fiume, or Fiume, or however you pronounce it, in 1920 by Italian World War I veterans who wanted to create a kind of pirate utopia. Um, so that's It's a piece of history I didn't even know about. There's a very interesting and and provocative and intelligent novel by Nisi Shaw called Everfair, Everfair, based on the um, based on the idea that the British Fabian Society carved out a utopian community from the Belgian Congo from King Leopold. A lot of this has to do with the really horrible kind of. Uh, genocidal rule of King Leopold in, in, of Belgium in, in the Congo in the 1880s and 1890s. And then thirdly, uh, which is a couple of months ago now, was, was China Miebel's novel um, The Last Days of uh, New Paris, which is based on a kind of 
not very well-known uh, chapter of the underground uh, resistance movement in Paris in 1940, and uh, and, and, and and some not very well-known surrealist painters, largely uh, women surrealists, whom a lot of people don't know about. So it just struck me within a period of a couple of months, I've read four alternate histories about parts of history that I've never read an alternate history about before. And I find this is a huge relief. It's not quite, well, actually, China Medieval kind of comes close to what is the most overworked alternate history scenario in the world, the Nazis sort of win or don't lose, or in his novel, they're still occupying Paris in 1950. But it makes me think that when you look at the, um, the huge kind of genre of alternate history, which is virtually calved off from science fiction by now, um, there is a lot to be said about this. There's a lot of exploration to be done that doesn't involve the U U.S. Civil War. It doesn't necessarily involve the Spanish Armada, and it doesn't necessarily involve Nazi Germany, because between those three events, I think I could probably name 20 historical alternate histories. So I'm glad to see that alternate history is beginning to think about history as something other than simply a kind of dramatic reversal. There's even a TV series now called Timeless, which um, which is not, yes, not bad, actually. Uh, it's okay. I mean, it's a very familiar, it's a familiar idea, idea that yeah. they'll be doing with different periods of history. Um, and they'll be doing with a Lincoln assassination next week, I think, or something like that. But what it did, which I didn't expect a TV series to do, was to recognize the fact that these people going back trying to save history are, in fact, changing it themselves. So that the present is going to yes. alter from week to week in this series, which could be very provocative. And, of course... It could be, but it's also it's actually st also stunningly obvious it's, it's, as well uh, in this modern era. I have to say, I mean, last night I just watched the pre the, the first episode of another new I series, Frequency, and it has exactly the same kind of thing. Exactly the same kind of thing. But this is this is what I can. And Gary, oh, this week I also watched the I also watched this week the first episode of the new season of The Flash, which I've not seen, which featured exactly the oh, same really? thing. Well, okay, this is imp somebody goes yeah yeah somebody goes back in time. Changes time and the future changes unexpectedly. This is fine. This is important uh, because this is what I consider the role of television and movies to be. My argument has been for a long time that time travel or time slip narratives, the idea of changing the past of the the, the, the time travel never became a very popular um, mass culture kind of event until the Back to the Future movies. The Back to the Future movies taught a mass audience what science fiction writers and readers had known for a hundred years by then, which is, this is, these are all the paradoxes involved in time travel. These are all the ironies involved in time travel. Now what we have is, again, ideas that are at least 50 or 60 years old in science fiction coming to the forefront in mass market entertainment. We saw a flash of this last year with the beginning of the Amazon series based on The Man in the High Castle. But that may have been too sophisticated too soon. What we have now are primers, and I see both the series Frequency and the series Timeless as being primers in how to deal with alternate timelines. And pretty soon, if this keeps up, we could begin to see really interesting alternate timeline uh, series. I'd love to see a series based on Ian McDonald's alternate history of uh, young adult novels. It would be a lot of fun. But, but you have to have... 
you have to have the mass audience tutored in how this works. And I think that what they're doing with these two series is offering some very basic lessons. They seem basic to you and me and all science fiction readers. Very basic lessons in how altering the past alters the present. Well, I mean, I would be convinced by that, except for the fact that I think that all of these science fiction, these, these time travel ideas have been heavily mainstreamed over the past 30 or 40 years. I mean, there were, there were prime time, tra- time travel television shows. Yes, in the there 60s. were. Uh, there was the time tunnel. You know, and, and, there, and there was no, I mean, time tunnel is basically timeless yeah, with a different right, exactly. device, right? So, I mean, there's not, nothing particularly new, you know, new or different about it. And what about Doctor Who? Except Doctor Who really doesn't muck around. Well, Doctor, Doctor Who did the Titanic. They've done the Titanic and that sort of thing. Uh, I, think, I think one of the issues that has come up before, and I've actually talked to uh, various writers about this over the years, is how do you deal with uh, the subtleties of time travel for a mass audience, especially in America, less so in the UK, that doesn't know any history at all? In other words, you begin with the Hindenburg, you have to explain what happened with the Hindenburg. You don't have a generation that's grown up yes. seeing that, that or hearing that audio clip over and over again. Uh, there, there are a handful of historical events that you can touch upon, and you can bet that they are touched upon by TV series. The Doctor Who touched upon the Titanic. The, the, the uh, Kennedy assassination was the subject of a Stephen King novel, and uh, I guess the series was pretty good. I didn't see it. But the thing is, you can't really do the subtle things that, let's say, Eric Flint does in his, because you don't have an audience for television that knows enough about history to know what's being altered. It's it's true. It's true. Just quickly, uh, because we are almost out of time, a couple of books that I saw around in the last week or so or that are about mm-hmm. to come out that I would also think are interesting, in, on top of this time travel or alternate history thing that you've noticed, uh, Ken Liu's thumpingly large Wallace. new novel... Um, Wall, mm-hmm. of, uh, Wall of Storms is out. It's like 900 pages long. And look, it's apparently it's terrific. And you can actually read it. I read a very interesting review of it online, which suggested you could even read it without... This is the second the volume of the Dandelion Dynasty. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, meaning there's now, what, 1,500 pages of, right. of that out in the world. There's Silvio uh, Moreno-Garcia's second novel, Certain Dark Things, is about to come out. Um... Garth Nix's Golden Hand came out last week, which is terrific. I read it and loved it. And uh, Connie Wilson's Crosstalk mm-hmm. came out last week. We talked about it before. It's kind of interesting with all this time travel stuff coming out. She comes out with not a time travel novel. And also out last week was Kaya Shante Wilson's A Taste of Honey, which is relevant because we hope to talk to him in the next mm-hmm. week or two. And again, it's a, it raises another issue, which we can talk about on another podcast, and possibly with Kaya and possibly with other authors as well. We've seen a number of really high-profile novellas coming out, many thanks to Tor.com. Uh, and it seems to me to be redefining the reading experience in a way which is more dramatic than it was when Tor.com began publishing online novellas. To my mind, being as old as I am, something about seeing these books, seeing, seeing uh, a, a Taste of Honey or seeing The Dream Quest of Ella Bull in my hands as a book, they feel like books. I feel like I'm reading a novel. And I think that's interesting. Well, something to address another time, though, Gary. Because we've, we've hit, hit the, the top, top of our hour. hour. And we should save this precious, this <laughs> precious stuff for another time. As always, it's been delightful talking to you, and we will do this again in a week. And as, as indeed. Well, until then, 
fairly well, and we shall talk All right. to everybody. Until next then, week. this is the Coot Street Podcast. <laughs>